0: This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Handan. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we got a fantastic show today with a fantastic guest, and we have a lot to cover today, so let's get right to it. Our main topic today is going to be talking about the Israeli President Itzhak Herzog addressing the joint session of Congress in the midst of a rather significant uh, protest of his arrival to the joint session. I mean, as many of our listeners and viewers know, Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Progressive Democratic, uh, you know, party, basically said that Israel was a racist state in an address that she gave in Chicago. Um, people went crazy, obviously, both on the left and the right. The pro-Israel groups just kind of attacked her viciously. Democrats and Republicans uh, attacked her viciously. And uh, this is needs to be discussed because you're inviting an Israeli president who's the head of an apartheid state who continues to oppress and ethnically cleanse uh, an indigenous people of, of uh, Palestine. So we're going to be covering that in some detail. But before we get to that, Jamal, uh, there's a really great interview that you did with Professor Avi Schlein. He's going to be discussing his recent book, Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew. He's revisiting his family's life in Iraq before they immigrated to the newly created uh, State of Israel. Dr. Schlein is an emeritus professor at St. Anthony College and a former professor of international relations at the University of Oxford.
1: The Zionist project and ensuing establishment of Israel in historic Palestine devastated the historical coexistence of ethnic and religious minorities in neighboring Arab countries. The Arab Jewish community in Iraq had historical ties and rich cultural traditions which extended back centuries. These all but vanished in a mass exodus of Iraqi Jews to Israel from 1950 to 1951. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is Professor Avi Shlaim. In his most recent work, Three Words, Memoirs of an Arab Jew, he revisits his family's idyllic days in Iraq where before they were unwittingly swept into the mass immigration of Iraqi Jews into newly created Israel. The family's cultural shock was traumatic and their fortunes were reversed forever. Avi Shlem is an emeritus fellow of St. Anthony's College and former professor of international relations at the University of Oxford. He was born in Baghdad and grew up in Israel. He's one of Israel's new historians and has authored many books on the Arab-Israeli conflict. Welcome to Arab Talk, Avi.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your
1: show. The title of your memoir aligns your Arab identity with your Jewish one. In today's context, uh, with the creation of Israel, most people don't even realize that there are Arab Jews. Can you talk about this?
2: Uh, Yes, this is the key point about my memoir. And um, the subtitle, Memoir of an Arab Jew, is very controversial in Israel uh, because Israelis maintain that um, an Arab Jew is an ontological impossibility. If you are a Jew, you cannot be an Arab, and if you are an Arab, you cannot be a Jew. And I deliberately used the term Arab Jew in the title in order to emphasize that I have a different view about Muslim-Jewish relations, and that there was a time when I was a boy in Baghdad when there was normal relations, harmonious relations between muslims and jews and the jews weren't anything unique they were just one minority among many and there are normal relations between jews and muslims and christians and other minorities now uh, young people when i say young people anyone under 75 years old anyone born after the establishment of the state of israel wouldn't know that this was a normal pattern throughout the Middle East, uh, that there were Arab Jews and that there were normal relations and there was nothing exceptional about it because they only know the present situation, which is a very unhappy one, of antagonism and enmity between Muslims and Jews. You
1: you talk about uh, how Zionism was uh, an ideology that did not resonate with the majority of Iraqi Jews, that it arose out of European anti-Semitism Can you elaborate on this?
2: Yes. Um, Zionism emerged in Europe in the second half of the 19th century. That was the age of nationalism. And in Europe, there was a Jewish problem. Uh, The Jews were a minority in every country, and there was anti-Semitism. Uh, one One climax of anti-Semitism in Europe was the Dreyfus Affair, in France. Uh, and um, that led Theodor Herzl, uh, a Hungarian Jew uh, and a journalist, to write a book, a pamphlet called The Jewish State. And his analysis said that um, anti-Semitism is pervasive in Europe. Um, and the only and the Jews are a minority everywhere. they don't have rights. So the only solution would be for there to be a Jewish state and where the Jews would be a majority, so there wouldn't be a problem of anti-Semitism. So that's the essence of Zionist ideology, which is the official ideology of the state of Israel. And Zionism says Zionism is the ideology which supports the establishment of the uh, Jewish state In Palestine, the establishment of the State of Israel, and then defending and maintaining this state. Uh, I would add a qualification to Zionist ideology. I would say the Zionist aim wasn't just a Jewish state in Palestine, but a Jewish state in as large as possible area of Palestine, with a few Arabs within its borders as possible. In other words, I see Zionism as an exclusive and divisive ideology which works only for Jews and not for Arabs. And the the last point I want to make about Zionism is that the one you mentioned, it was a European idea. The Zionist movement was a a movement uh, by European Jews or European Jews, and it didn't address at all the Jew's of the Eastern Jews, the Jews of the Arab countries. In fact, Zionism looked down on the Jews of the Arab lands as backward and primitive. Um, It's only after the Holocaust, after the Holocaust removed the main reservoir of population for the Jewish state, that the Zionist movement started to look to the Jews of the East. My mother used to work lyrical about the wonderful Um, Muslim friends that we had in Baghdad. And one day I said to her, did we have any Zionist friends? And she looked at me as if it was a very strange idea. And she said, no, um, Zionism is an Ashkenazi thing. It's nothing to do with us."
1: Well, I mean, definitely. I mean, you've said uh, early on you have to be pretty much born pre-1948 to even think about these ideas. Like the, the young generation, let, let, let's let say if we talk about it today with the makeup of the Israeli government with people like uh, uh, Itamar Ben-Givir, uh, and you look at his background, his uh, Iraqi Kurdish background, but he's, I would say, more Zionist than Ashkenazi Zionist in his thinking.
2: Well, indeed, uh, and... Um... It is, he is a good example of someone of uh, uh, Middle Eastern origins. As you say, he's uh, a Kurd from Iraq by origin, and he is an extreme Zionist, uh, ultra-nationalist. Um, and he is not uh, alone. Uh, he represents a phenomenon Israeli politics in Israeli politics since the arrival of the Jews of the Arab lands in the early 50s. And that is that um, Eastern Jews, um, Sephardi Jews, have voted in large numbers for parties of the right and religious parties. Uh, And the Likud, the right-wing nationalist party, came to power for the first time in 1977 uh, under the leadership of Menachem Begin because of the l- large proportion of Arab Jews who vote for the parties of the right. And today, uh, the, these are, um, Israelis with, who are descendants from uh, the Middle East, their parents are from the Middle East, they still... Uh, vote in large numbers for the parties uh, of the right. Now, the question is, that's a fact. It's an important fact in Israeli politics. It explains why the politic, the, the right wing is so strong and dominates Israeli politics. But the question is, why do the um, Jews of the Arab lands vote for the parties uh, of the right? And the official answer, the Zionist answer, is because these Jews lived with Arabs. They lived in Arab countries. They know what Arabs are really like. They understand the Arab mentality in inverted commas. They know that Arabs only respect the language of force. That's why the mood for nationalist parties. And I say, no, this is not true. Uh, our experience in Arab countries differed, but it was nowhere as bleak. Uh, and bad as Zionist ideology would have you believe. I believe that I think that the real reason why, um, why Oriental Jews tend to vote for the parties of the right is that they were indoctrinated in Israel. They arrived in Israel. The educational system is a Zionist, and um, the army is a melting pot and you get, you get subjected to more indoctrination. So it's, uh, they vote for the parties of the right because they're indoctrinated uh, and um, because the Arabs are seen just as the enemy uh, and everyone has to unite behind the government against the um, enemy. And there is another issue, and that's uh, a class issue. Yeah. The... Uh, Jews from Arab countries, um, especially the Jews from Morocco who tended to be lower class, less educated uh, Jews, who in Israel ended up as the bottom of the pile, uh, as the bottom of the social hierarchy, um, as manual laborers. Uh, They can pride themselves on being true Israelis, nationalistic Israelis. Uh, patriotic Israelis by looking down uh, on Arabs. So there is also um, an issue of class that helps to explain this phenomenon that you talked about.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I've, I've spoken to, to many colleagues, many Israeli colleagues, and in fact, uh, as you've mentioned, the uh, Israelis or the new immigrants to, to, to Israel who came from the Arab world were treated up till the 70s as third-class citizens. They didn't kind of integrate that well. It is often said that uh, writing a memoir is cathartic experience that reveals and often resolves unconscious conflicts and personal experiences. Did you find this to be true?
2: Well, yes, very much so, because I didn't really understand what I was letting myself in for. I am um, a diplomatic historian, and I know how to write diplomatic history. I've also written a biography of King Hussein of Jordan. That was easy. You have one central character, and you build a narrative around your central character. But I've never written about myself, Mm -hmm. and I had to overcome serious inhibitions in order to embark on the writing of this memoir. And... One help that I got was from a friend of mine, Orit Bashkin. She's an Israeli scholar of Middle Eastern history. She's a professor at um, Chicago University, and she wrote a wonderful book called New Babylonians, A History of the Jews in Modern Iraq. And um, this book gave me the prompt uh, to start writing my memoir, because it provided a framework. So I didn't write just a personal history, but I put my personal history and the history of my family within the wider context of the history of the Jews in um, uh, modern Iraq. But you're quite right. In the process of writing this memoir, um, there was something cathartic, and I started remembering things that I have completely forgotten About uh, and um, uh, writing it enabled me to make sense of my early life because my life didn't make sense. We we were Arab Jews. Why were with and with? In your introduction, you said that the Jews had been in Iraq for centuries. I must correct you: the Jews in Iraq were there for millennia, since the sixth century B.C. The sixth century. B.C. since the Babylonian uh, exile. So writing this memoir was cathartic and it enabled me to make sense of my life. And the main force that shaped my life and reshaped my identity was Zionism, which said that there is only one Jewish state and all the Jews from all four corners of the earth could come and live in in Israel. Uh, So as a diplomatic historian, I focused on the Arab-Israeli conflict, and I knew that the Palestinians are the main victim of Zionism, uh, but writing this memoir uh, made me realize that there was another category of victims of Zionism who are not much talked about, and that's the Arab Jews. Mm. I want
1: to get back to this because that's a very important point, the other victim in this Uh, But first, let me ask you, uh, you devote a lot of your book to the conditions under which Iraqi Jews emigrated to Israel. You say there is a controversy about this. What is uh, your narrative of what transpired in 1950 to 1951 when Iraq lost 90 percent of its minority Jews, a a community that you've just said been there for millenniums?
2: So let's start with the fact. In, um, at the beginning of 1950, there was 135 Jews in Iraq. By the end of 1952, uh, roughly 125 Jews ended up in Israel, and 10,000 Jews remained in Iraq. Those who remained were not harmed uh, at all.
1: Hundred, from 135,000
2: to to 10,000, basically. Yes. Uh so more than 90% of the population ended up uh, in Israel. What call, and in, in in Hebrew, it's called the Big Aliyah, the Big Aliyah from Iraq. Um, uh, what accounts for this mass exodus? The Zionist explanation is very straightforward. It was persecution. It was anti-Semitism. It's some... Um, um, Uh, and anti-Semitism is said to be pervasive and perennial and inescapable in all Arab and Islamic countries, Uh, and there was persecution of the Jews, and that led them to leave Iraq. That's the official narrative. I say that the exodus of the Jews of Iraq is a complex process, and there isn't one factor, but there are many different factors, and The main factor, in my view, is official persecution of the Jews by the government after the 1948 war. Uh, In the 1948 war, the Iraqi army participated in the war for Palestine, um, and then the Arab armies were defeated. All the neighboring Arab states signed armistice agreements with Israel in 1949, but the the Iraqi army withdrew, and the Iraqi government refused to sign an armistice agreement, and Iraq is still officially at war with Israel. So, uh, after the defeat, um, there was a backlash against the Jews, not just in Iraq, but in Egypt and Syria and uh, elsewhere. So, that was a major factor. Um, uh, you also write, You also write a lot about bombings of Jewish
1: targets in Iraq. These uh, created fear that increased the exodus uh, of Jews from Iraq. You've done extensive research about who was responsible. What was your conclusion about these bombings and why?
2: So, um, in the year 1950 to 51, when um, the great majority of the Jews left Iraq, five bombs were planted in Jewish sites. Um, uh, one in a cafe, I do know, one, the most famous bomb was a hand grenade logged into the Masuda Shentob synagogue, and there are three other bombs of Jewish sites. Uh, and, um, I was always interested in this story because my family, my relatives, all Iraqi Jews were convinced that Israel had a hand in the bombs, that Israel ejected them out of Iraq and then mistreated them badly whilst they arrived uh, in Israel. So this was the uh, prevalent view, and it's, uh, whether true or not, it fueled resentment of the state of, of Israel. But I wanted to know whether this is just a conspiracy theory or whether it is true. So I've done my research, and the conclusion that I've come to is that Um, The Zionist underground was responsible for three out of the five bombs, Uh, and um, I had the oral testimony of uh, a member of the Zionist underground who told me the story in detail, but much more importantly, as a piece of evidence, was a one-page police report about the bombings, which named... The main uh, Zionist activist, Yosef Basri, who was caught. Uh, He was tried and he was sentenced uh, to death. Um, And um, the police report not only names him, but reports what he said in the interrogation. And they only also caught his assistant, and his assistant took them around to all the places in private homes and synagogues where arms were hidden by the Zionist emissaries to Baghdad. So my conclusion is that Israel had a hand in the bombings because Yosef Basri uh, had a controller who was an Israeli intelligence officer uh, named Max Bennett, who was based in Tehran um, and um, now my findings are disputed uh, my critics say that this is still a co- conspiracy theory um, that I'm maligning uh, the state of Israel but I think it's strong and incontrovertible evidence uh, my critics also say that I claim that it's the bonds the we'll it's the bonds that caused the exodus. But I say nothing of the sort. As I told you a minute ago, I think that the exodus is a complex story to be understood in the context um, of what happened in Iraq and in the Middle East and in Israel, Palestine uh, at that time. And this is just one factor that accelerated the exodus to Israel. But I'll say something else. Even if not a single Jew left Baghdad, left Iraq, because of the bonds. I would still uh, consider it a very significant fact because it tells us something about Zionist aims and Zionist methods. It tells us something about the ruthlessness of the Zionist movement in uprooting the Jews from their Arab uh, homeland. This is one example of um, something much bigger which has been described not by me but by someone else as cruel Zionism. So the bones in in the streets of Baghdad in 1950-51 are um, a striking example of cruel Zionism. Um,
1: Talk about life as a a new immigrant to Israel. How how did your parents adjust? Did they have an easy or difficult time integrating?
2: Uh, We were privileged. We were a very wealthy upper middle class Jewish family in Baghdad. My father was a very rich merchant. We lived in a palatial house with uh, a lot of servants, and um, and um, we we didn't leave Iraq as part of the exodus because my mother had a British passport. Her, father had been an interpreter for the British consulate in Baghdad, so her family had British passport. And my mother, my grandmother, mostly, my two sisters and I left Baghdad on a regular flight to uh, Cyprus, and from there we went to Israel. And my father left Iraq illegally, across the border into Iran, and then joined us a year later uh, in in. Israel. So our experience was not typical, but the typical experience of the bulk of the Iraqis who ended up in Israel was that uh, they arrived with one suitcase and 50 dinars. They arrived, they were penniless, and when they arrived at the airport, they were sprayed with DDT, like animals, which was a really traumatic experience for them. That was the the welcome they receive when they arrive at the holy land and from the airport they were taken to transit camps and in the transit camps conditions were very poor. and i'll say in in fairness to israel that these were early days the state had just been established um, and resources were limited and those immigration from eastern europe as well so it was quite a challenge to absorb so many immigrants, but the conditions were very, very poor, um, and um, uh, this caused resentment of the new uh, immigrants. Uh, and then the Iraqi community, Jewish community, felt rather better than other communities because it arrived with its leaders and with the professional class, with lawyers, and doctors, and so on. So it uh, managed to integrate into Israeli society better than other communities. But some people did very well. Some people really um, succeeded really well and did very well in Iran. But, um, and this is a point that I emphasize in my book, for the Jewish community as a whole, the experience was traumatic. It's like uh, a tree... Being pulled up by the roots, uh, and it was a collective experience uh, of. And there is, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll make one last point on this. I had a distant relative called uh, Itzhak Bar Moshe. He was an author, a writer in Israel. He wrote ten books, all in Arabic, and one of them was uh, his memoirs, and it was called Al Khuruj Min Al iraq Departure from Iraq. And he says, we left Iraq as Jews and we arrived in Israel as Iraqis. In other words, we didn't really belong either in Iraq anymore or in, uh, in Israel because the Arab Israeli conflict created such a deep division in, in the Middle East. You
1: talk about how, uh, of course, most of them didn't uh, speak Hebrew, and um, they spoke Arabic at home, but uh, they were embarrassed when they went outside or when they were heard speaking Arabic. So this is the opening
2: scene in my book. Um, It was summer. I am about 10 years old. I am playing in the street with my friends. We We wore sandals and shorts. And along comes my father, and he wears uh, a tailor-made three-piece suit with a white shirt and a tie. And he looks alien. He looks very foreign. And he comes to me, and he starts speaking to me in Arabic. And I'm, I was acutely embarrassed, because Ar- everything Arab was considered inferior. Arabic was considered not just the language of the enemy, but a very ugly, guttural language. So I was, went red and only spoke in um, monosyllables. What I wanted to say to him is that it's okay to speak Arabic at home, but now we are in Israel, and in front of my friends, I'd rather you spoke to me in Hebrew. But he couldn't speak Hebrew. He could only speak to me uh, in Arabic, and that sort of was emblematic of the difficulty that all of us, all of the members of uh, my family um, and the larger community had in um, uh, adjusting to the new Lurik in Israel. Uh, And this difficulty of communication is something that continued to affect my relationship with my father because he never really got over uh, the trauma uh, of arriving in a new country where he couldn't find his feet, he was unemployed, he was mildly depressed. So, in Hebrew, immigration means aliyah. Aliyah means ascent to the holy, to the to the promised land. But in our experience, the move from uh, Baghdad to Ramat Gan near Tel Aviv was not uh, was not ascent. It was. Deep Yerida, it was a descent um, to the margins of Israeli society.
1: Talk about the, the three words in your book's title and explain each one's defining influence on
2: who you are today. Um, so, well, I was born in Baghdad in 1945. Uh, the first world is Baghdad up to the age of five up to 1950. The second world is Raban Gan, a town near Tel Aviv in Israel, where I went to school from the age of 5 to 15. Uh, and the third world is school in London uh, from the age of 15 to um, 18. Uh, and um, so by the age of 18, I had had not one, but two major upheavals, uh, and I have a friend who is Iraqi-Israeli, um, Ella Shohat, a professor uh, at NYU and a leading cultural critic. She published a collection of essays called uh, "On the Arab Jew, Palestine, and Other Displacements," and her book was a great inspiration for me. Uh, in writing my own memoir, and she uses the phrase changing linguistic landscapes and the emotional cartography uh, of displacement. Mm -hmm. Uh, Changing linguistic landscapes and the uh, emotional cartography of displacement. Mm -hmm. And this may sound a bit pretentious, but it, it helps me to make sense of my early life, because... When I was five, I arrived in a new country, a new society, totally different, unfamiliar society, and I had to learn a new language, Hebrew. And when I was 15, uh, I went into a second exile in London, and I had to learn a new language, English, because I, I didn't, couldn't speak English when I arrived in London. In fact, I was about to be thrown out of high school in Israel because I failed English. And other shortly. That's why my parents sent me to study uh, in England. So by the age of 18, I had gone through a lot of changes, and that shaped my, um, that was a very formative period, and it shaped my identity. I used to be very naive and think that we are given an identity and off we go. But in the course of writing this memoir, I realized what a complex identity is, and that we don't entirely shape it ourselves, but it's partly shaped by society. And in my case, the dominant societal force that shaped my identity was Zionism. Zionism erased or tried to erase my Arab identity and to give me a new identity as a new Israeli. I never felt completely comfortable with the new identity, and also uh, Zionism has a narrative about history of the Jews. Uh, and the American Jewish historian Salo Baron called it the lachrymose version of Jewish history. that is, Jewish history, which is um, um, a never-ending chain of uh, discrimination, hostility, anti-Semitism, persecution, culminating in the Holocaust. I'm prepared to concede, for argument's sake, that this fits the history of the Jews of Europe, though I think even there it's a great oversimplification. But I strongly deny that the lacrimose version um, fits our history uh, in the Arab countries or Muslim um, countries. So now, as a 77-year-old historian, looking back i uh, asserted my right to write our own history um, rather than have um, jewish history the zionist master narrative the eurocentric lens uh, color or rewrite our our own history so that's uh, the one contribution that i hope i made in writing this book apart from recording the family history is to give a true account, a more nuanced account, of what life was like for Jews in the Middle East before the birth of the state of Israel.
1: You, the personal descriptions and family experience uh, in your book are, are so kept captivating. And as you've mentioned, you've left Iraq when you were five years old, so you had to rely on... On narratives given to you by family members, you mention your mother as being an important source. How did she help you weave these early memories together? And and who else helped you to reconstruct this part of your family's history?
2: My mother is the main source for the memoir and the hero of the story. Uh, My mother um, was called Masouda in Iraq. And Saida or short. Uh, and when she came to Israel, she changed her name to Ida. Um, and uh, she died in Israel two years ago, age 96. And she was completely lucid until the end. And over the five years that I was collecting material and writing this memoir, I used to speak to her regularly and interview her. And she loved talking about the Golden Age, about the great days uh, in Iraq. Uh, And uh, she had a very good memory. And uh, I kept writing notes. Um, uh, And so she's the main source for our life in Iraq, because I couldn't remember all that much since I was five years old when we left. But her testimony is very important. various chapters, various episodes, like the Farhud, which was a pogrom against the Jews in Iraq in 1941. It's very controversial. The Zionist version says it was an outburst of underlying anti-Semitism. That's all there is to it. It's just anti-Semitism attack on the Jews. Uh, And I say it's a much more complex story. There was anti-Semitism, but there was also british colonialism british divide and rule um and um m- my mother spent a month um during the farhood the-, the month that preceded the farhood uh, uh took she took refuge in the american embassy in baghdad so she gives her own account of the farhood um and um most accounts are given by men, and it was important for me to try and uh, and uh, contribute to the gender balance in this history by giving her testimony. I'll just give you one example of what she saw, said to me about the fairhood, or, um, she, she First, there was violence against the Jews, but the second day, uh, poor people came from, the outskirts of Baghdad, loot. And one um, a very poor Arab who lived in a shack with no electricity or running water uh, stole or took a radio from a Jewish store and took it home, but he had no electricity. So he turned it on and it was silent. So he banged on the radio and he said, come on, sing. You sing for the Jews. You don't. Why don't you sing for us? So if you want to, you can see this as an example of anti-semitism but I'll say it was something else the book
1: is the three words memoir of an Arab Jew by Avi Shlem uh, the book is available in major bookstores worldwide as well as on Amazon uh, Avi Shlem, thank you for coming on Arab talk
2: thank you very much indeed good day
0: Really fantastic interview, man.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely a great interview, and we recommend getting the book. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful book to to read, and a lot of history and a lot of knowledge, which most people don't know that Arab Jews exist. I mean, it's got lost. This definition after the creation of Israel and and people try to say, well, Mizrahi Jews, Jews from the Middle East, but they don't use that terminology. But he actually uses it because he was an Iraqi Jew born in Iraq. His father only spoke Arabic before uh, immigrating to, to the newly created uh, state of Israel. And uh, anyway, uh, moving on to our next topic, just, you know, (laughs) in your intro, you know, here you have uh, Isaac Herzog uh, invited to address a joint session of Congress, despite calls for boycott, which we have to say, uh, you know, from within Congress, not too many people, but there were calls, but this is also comes uh, just on the heels of a Republican presented resolution that was voted in by both Democrats and right. Republicans. Uh, how many times have you seen a par- bipartisan votes? Like, there's it's only about, one issue. Whether it's about the economy or health anything. The no, and, there's only one issue. There's only one issue. So there's they, all, issue. So they yeah. all came together just to say, and I'm, that Israel is not a racist state and Israel is not an apartheid state. I mean, this is like, Someone advocating for a criminal and saying, uh, or a murderer or a rapist, and saying, you know, he or she is not a murderer.
0: Well, here's the thing, Jamal. Uh, you have Israeli organizations calling Israel an an apartheid state. You have the international community referring to Israel as an apartheid state. You have Israelis. You have the international community saying that uh, the State of Israel acts in a racist way towards non-Jews, towards Arabs, towards Africans. I mean, there's just a story that came out today that a number of Ethiopian Jews are being ex- being expelled from the state of Israel after a 10-year fight. So the fact that Israel practices in a, uh, a racist uh, ideology and a racist uh, approach to anybody who happens to not be Jewish uh, is clear, is un- is unarguable and is actually well articulated by a large number of uh, Israelis themselves, as well as the international community. This particular event though, with Itzhak Herzog Jamal is really damaging. Let's just show you how outrageous the Republicans are. They celebrate the leader of a racist apartheid state. But then when he celebrated LGBTQ plus parade in Jerusalem, uh, which most is, which a lot of the Israeli right is, you know, firmly against and attacked. You had the Republicans who welcomed him, basically give a silent boycott to him and were critical of the comments that he made towards LGBTQ plus uh, community members. So, my question to you, Jamal, is: Do you think the Republicans are ever going to wake up? I mean, they're hitching their wagon to a racist apartheid state. Eventually, these right wingers are going to turn on them. Some point. At some point, they're going to turn on them. Yet they're hitching their wagon to them right now.
1: Well, I don't know about the Republicans; It might take some time. But I can tell you that the Democrats are out of tune with their constituencies. Absolutely, and this is this is very important. Of course, now we mentioned the few Democrats boycotted, starting with uh, you know Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Jamal Bowman, Cory Bush, Cory Bush. Bush. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, you know and and so forth. however, when you have this bipartisans uh, I don't want to say is it uh, uh, tour de force uh, love, uh, fest. Uh, uh, love, love fest. fest love fest love <laughs> fest alongside their Republican rivals uh, welcoming Herzog but going back to the Democrats and we spoke about this, Uh, Why they are so out of tune, uh, Jess. We talked about the Gallup, the annual Gallup poll survey that found Democrat sympathies lie more with Palestinians than Israelis by a margin of 49% to 38%. They, That's right. And I'm looking here at the at the poll just to remind our listeners and viewers, the survey found that sympathy toward Palestinians among U.S. adults is at a new high of 31%, while the proportion not favoring either side is at a new low of 15%, which is basically just a remarkable shift from a decade ago when sympathy toward Palestinians stood at just 12 Percent And uh, during that same period, sympathy towards Israelis has declined from 64% to 54%. Uh, percent. Also, uh, you have other polls uh, just and uh, about Israel's so-called democracy, that they're trying to force it down our throats, our taxpayers, U.S. taxpayers' throat, that Israel is a vibrant democracy, Israel is not a racist state, Israel is not an apartheid state. And uh, they ha- there was a poll conducted between March and April uh, of this year. Only 9% of responses chose to say that Israel is a democracy. Only 9%. So look yeah. at that when you compare it to U.S. Congress, minus the, uh, the 435 plus the 100 senators, minus the 9 So I don't know what's that percentage would be, like 98% in support.
0: Yeah, but it supports your point, Jamal. The Congress and both houses of Congress are out of step, not only with their constituents, Jamal, but out of step with reality. And it shows you the split between reality and the power and the influence of pro-Israel lobby groups, these congressmen and women are terrified to speak the truth about what's happening in Palestine. I mean, look at Pramila Jayapal. You know, she had to walk by her statement. Did did you, did you happen to catch how she parsed it? She said, oh, I'm so sorry. Israel is not a racist state, but some of the people who lead the country are racist and some of the policies. I mean, it's just like, it's just like ludicrous that she's trying to parse it in this way at a time when they're trying to crush the judiciary uh, in this apartheid state, further eroding any possibility of democratic you know checks and balances in this apartheid state. i mean it's it's really crazy, but you know, with the poll results that you you mentioned, Jamal, time is on the side of justice. Time is on the side of Palestine. Time is on the side of Palestinian uh, justice for you know equal rights and, and self-determination because these numbers are c- continue to grow in terms of international and national support for the Palestinian cause. So sorry congressmen and women, Republicans and Democrats, again, the majority of you are on the wrong side of history.
1: They are on the wrong side of history, and, and one other poll that I didn't mention is also a poll amongst uh, uh, Jewish Americans, and uh, right. especially amongst right. the young Jewish Am- Americans. And the poll also shows that their support of Israel is eroding. Of course, and, and and you know, so I don't know who who are who are who they are speaking to. When you know who, they make these you statements, know. You are know. they speaking to the American public or no. are they speaking to APAC? I mean, that's that's the question to you, Jess.
0: Well, they're speaking to APAC. They're speaking to the money. They're speaking to the the anxiety that all congressmen and congresswomen feel if they are critical and honest about what's happening. Uh, in historic Palestine and what's happening to the apartheid state, the Israeli apartheid state. If they were to truly be honest about it, they would say exactly what uh, Congressman Jayapal said, but they, they're speaking from a, 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 a place of fear and anxiety. And I'll say, Jamal, that place of fear and anxiety, is, it's an illusion about how much power Uh, they have. It's still powerful, even though it's an illusion. But the way things are going historically, the way the polls are going, the way the apartheid state is going, um, you know, it's not just being on the wrong side of history, Jamal. We're talking about U.S. congressmen and women actually voting against the strategic interests of the United States and the people of the United States. And that time, that
1: reckoning is going
0: to come. It's also embarrassing.
1: I mean, just the fact that you have a resolution. I mean, as if they don't have anything better to do, to have a resolution (laughs) about something like... uh, I've never seen a resolution uh, as such, uh, be it a resolution in favor of France or ally or England or Canada, or I don't know what to say that they are not racist. I mean, imagine, this is just a a ludicrous resolution to, to, to boot, to uh, in the summer, <laughs> before they actually go on on hiatus, you know, in in August, uh, basically Washington D.C. is empty. They rushed into into that invitation. They rushed to pass this resolution. I mean, do you think they have a resolution on uh, student loan forgiveness? No, no they but, killed but, they but, killed that uh, uh, that whatever administration initiative. Do you think that they have a resolution on to eradicate? poverty in the United States, hunger, homelessness, none of that. No, but I do think this
0: is going to come back to bite a lot of vulnerable Democrats uh, who are straddling the fence between progressive politics and kind of these reactionary politics of Schumer and, and Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, this is going to come back. I mean, this is going to be a very important, you know, when we come to the congressional elections in 2024, I I th- I believe firmly that this vote and what happened in the Congress this past week is going to help further the progressive movement of Democrats uh, in in the
1: House. So what do you think will happen? I mean, we know where the the Republicans stand, and I don't think I I don't I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel that they're going to have a shift or a change. And then we have a progressive movement within uh, Congress. Even though the progressive movement, if we were gonna, uh, if we were gonna break it down, uh, maybe it's far more than nine people. But only nine it people is. took a stand. Only nine out of, let's say, thirty or thirty-five took a stand. So when you say they're gonna punish these congressmen and congresswomen who took, who made that vote, who will win? I mean, who? Are you, I uh, mean, are, well, are, here's what see... I think.
0: Here's what I think, Jamal. Remember, and I, we say this all the time. it's a marathon and not a sprint this all the numbers that we spoke about today with the poll numbers, the fact that we even had nine congressmen and women stand up for justice and boycott this this uh you know this this racist representative, this representative, of this racist apartheid state is a big step, and I think it's very positive. so when I say punish. What I mean to say is that more people within the Democratic Party are going to join the the progressive caucus, which is the largest caucus, by the way, within the Democratic Party. It's the largest one, you know, calling themselves progressive. And it's only going to get larger. It's only going to get bigger. Will it change overnight? No. But are we on a path toward very significant progressive change toward approaching how we support this apartheid state? I believe it. Absolutely, yes. It's just a question of time.
1: You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, Arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows and we'll talk to you next week. See you next week.